This is the President of the United States speaking. Through the marvels of advance, my voice is coming to you from a satellite circling in outer space. Communication user, telephone, when you entertain the nation, it's a microphone. They say you can't be made on the Please welcome Ted Koppel. This is State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. The Stanford Storytelling Project. Each episode, we take a common human experience. Like teaching, or breathing, or joking. And bring you stories that explore and deepen our understanding of that experience. And this episode, we'll be talking about broadcasting. I'm Kathy Wong. This is crazy because you're here now, and as soon as we're done, you go back to work. Um, it's even crazier than that. I'm here now, yeah. but I've already been on. I was struck by how much music and how many voices talking about the radio. Hello, Mr. Radio. I thought about the idea of a radio. One person just trying to reach out to somebody else, and they don't even know where they are. La, la, la. So many songs for the radio are also songs about love. That's communication. The word broadcasting has its origins in farming. Literally the wide swing of the hand to spread seed over a large area. It's a wasteful technique. And that's what broadcasting is, a style of sowing seeds, scattering them, hoping some of them would take root. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us. We are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. We out from the transmitter tower into the tube coils behind your radio dial. It's like a welcome knock on the door and the sound of the familiar voice of an old friend. My message is a simple one. Through this unique means, I convey to you and to all mankind America's wish for peace on earth and goodwill everywhere. in a low-ceilinged, nondescript room. Twenty or so Stanford engineers gather on the first Tuesday of every month 
for the Stanford Amateur Radio Club, W6YX, which they pronounce Whiskey 6, Yankee X-Ray. Imagine being uh, able to watch all the TV stations at the same time. This is the equivalent for radio. If you aren't trying to talk to anyone in particular, you just say CQDX, calling distant radio station, or is anybody out there? Most calls on ham radios are CQDX calls. So we're going to hook up our antenna to this radio, and this radio is connected to this uh, repeater linked network. So each one of these lines is a, is a different radio station. So you can just click on them. Right. Oh, I just turned the volume. And hear what's there. If we get on and, and transmit on here, all repeaters, they're either linked from mountaintop to mountaintop or over the internet. They're going to come out from all around the world. So in London and Japan, all over America and so forth. You never know who's going to uh, pick up. Act one, a perfect storm. Broadcasting rhythms from the South Bronx to the east of Havana. It's the early 1980s in the South Bronx. It's panhandlers, kids playing in the streets, and even though people are just trying to keep from going under, the news cycle keeps telling the same old story. South Bronx. For years, it has been a way of saying despair. Poverty. Unemployment. Hellish crime. Drug addiction. Abandoned buildings. A national symbol for urban decay. There is total unemployment here, total crime, total drug addiction. A New York neighborhood, which has long been a reproach to the nation. But the South Bronx is trying to rise from the ashes. It is a battle to do so. The battleground was much bigger than Reagan's war on drugs or black-on-black -black crime. It was an everyday battle to survive in a country full of obstacles. The biggest battle was the battle to be heard. A war to tell the story in their words. Broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage. You know they just don't care. I can't take the smell. Can't take the noise. Got no money to move out. I guess I got no choice. What you hear in the music is, you know, the sounds of street parades. Right? You, you hear the sounds of, of the marches. You hear Afro-Cuban sounds. You hear reggae, you hear samba, you hear New Orleans street parade, the Mardi Gras Indians, you hear all of these different types of things coming back in hip-hop. Hip-hop made room for the pain, the struggle, and the celebration, like many other forms of black music had done in the past. If you create something that reflects your origins, this is significant. All black music, to me, is liberating. People wanted to express their reality, their humanity. Working check to check made it hard to do anything but focus on surviving. They wanted to let people know how hard it is to find a job when you have a record, even if it is just for a petty crime. They wanted the country to hear about the frustration and hurt that comes out of being black in America. Things didn't change drastically. It was hard to work against systems of power, but people were allowed to tell their story and change the discussion. From the top, 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 top of the Empire State Building, 97.1, WQHT, New York. Hi, 
Hip-hop songs began to get heavy rotation on commercial radio stations, including Southern Florida, broadcasting over the oceans. Radio waves from Southern Florida reached the closest tip of Cuba to a community called Alamo. Radio Havana, Cuba. Havana, Cuba. My uncle, he made those antennas to get all that, that radio wave. People felt that, that, that rhythm in, in their bodies. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Cuba wanted to tap into the tourism industry to help their cash flow. Alamar was created as a place to move the workers out of the tourism center of Havana. These people were the darker-skinned laborers that did not fit the postcard image of Havana. The buildings they were moved into reminded me of the Bronx projects. I, I don't like to say that, but it's a real, the bitter truth. I mean, nothing of beauty. Everything was very equal, all the buildings. It was just a buildings. Just to live, just to come, to cook, to eat with your family, and to sleep. The next day, got to work. And basically, at the very beginning, this area was founded by workers. But the sons of the worker grew up with different intentions, and a lot of them were artists, troubadours, musicians. And they gathered together in the so-called cultural house of Alamar, and then they founded this movement. And they started to make this artistical protest against the status quo. Hip-hop carried a liberating rhythm. Rappers from the United States were already working through what it was like to live in small apartments with big families, working long hours for little to no wage. They laid the foundation for Cuban artists to take the story into their own hands. Angry, frustrated feelings about what it was like to be poor. It was the perfect medium. Excluded and forgotten in a country built on unity. With the perfect message. People were able to focus on the experience of the black Cuban. A perfect storm. They recorded their own music, making home studios out of old speakers, makeshift turntables, and microphones sourced from the community. The recording booths were insulated using egg carton boxes. They did everything they could to make the magic happen, to make sure their voices were heard. Things didn't necessarily change for Alamar, but because Cubans were not allowed to tell any other story than the national narrative, the truth in the music was a form of resistance. At that time, I had six radio shows. And I remember we had a very popular radio show Sundays from 7 a.m. to 12. And we brought a lot of people from, from that movement in Alamar. I mean, they were people that devoted a lot of time and energy to organize this movement, I mean, in a very serious way. In 2002, 
a young rapper performed at a festival and addressed the Cuban police in a song. The government was not happy, to say the least. In Cuba, anything that does not align with the government cannot be said. People know that it is dangerous to speak up. It's a fact that you go to the street with a camera, with a microphone, and you ask people, and people are afraid of saying what they think. People are afraid to express themselves, and they're getting tired. That's why hip-hop in Cuba was such a big deal when it broke. No one had been talking about race in Cuba in this way before that moment, especially in a country where people are told there is no racism. I talk with El Brujo, the wizard, one of the veterans of Cuban hip-hop, about what that moment in 2002 meant. The moment that the, the agency was created was a beautiful moment. He says sarcastically, making air quotes. At that time. There were more than 100 groups of rappers in all the country, and only like 10 went to the Cuban rap agency. At that time, it was important because they uh, professionalized rappers. You have uh, really great things, like for example, they organize like uh, national tours, you are represented, but some of them think that the, the management is more like uh, being censored. The tension surrounding the agency created a rift in the movement. While some rappers followed the money and turned to reggaeton, other younger rappers attempted to uphold the legacy of the older generations, making music about truth, community, and resistance. Rafa is one of the top artists in the most recent wave of Cuban hip-hop. He's trying to uphold the legacy of Cuban rap by making music about race and empowerment, rather than creating dance tracks like reggaeton artists. When I was young, the first time that I listened to hip-hop was the first time that I got to being, being proud of being a black person. But before, I was just felt like I was different and didn't fit in society, but when the first time that I listened to hip-hop, I started to, I tried to feel, um, feel respect for myself. If you were to watch his music video, you'd understand how literally he takes this role of a teacher and a leader. There are several shots of him in a classroom speaking to a group of Cuban students about Africa and African descendants. His messages are for his community. Historically, Cuba was a huge slave port, meaning that there are many Cuban people descended directly from enslaved African peoples. Rafa emphasizes that history. You know, Mirasa, he's talking about my race. You can, you can highlight it on my profile, this is who I am. And what he talks about is his identity as an Afro-Cuban, Afro-man. A part of Rafa's mission is to spread his message without having to leave his people on the island. To most, the solution would be a no-brainer, social media. But on an island where you can only access the internet at hotels and parks through hourly Wi-Fi cards, a simple problem becomes impossible. Enter Afro Razones. Essentially, what Afro Razones was was a platform to highlight 
um, black Cuban culture and music and to bridge transnational relationships in an organic and, and sustainable way. The name Afro Razones is meant to reclaim Razones, or raisin, a derogatory term used to describe black Afro hair. The entire project is reclaiming the black Cuban experience. Basically, the idea was to open um, Gmail, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud accounts for the artists and teach them about it and teach them how to use it and teach them how they can use these accounts to get their music out there. Because in my experience with music up until then, you know, I'm here in Cuba, I hear amazing music all the time, and so often I'll go up to somebody and be like, wow, that's amazing, how can I find your music? And they'll be like, uh, I don't know, here's my number, call me. If I'm not home, my mom will give you a copy of my CD. You know? And for people outside of Cuba, it's like, how, how do you hear what's happening here? You don't. Some of the artists had literally never connected to the internet before. So we, you know, we're taught them about Instagram and SoundCloud, how SoundCloud, for example, even though, look, the internet here is complicated. It's hard to use, it's not accessible, it's expensive, but it's, it's possible. Right now, the message seems contained to Cuba. But as more Caribbean and Latin sounds make their way onto the radio, there may be room for their stories alongside U.S. rappers continuing the legacy of hip-hop as community empowerment. There need to be people who need to be the keepers of the knowledge, right? There need to be people who are the transmitters of knowledge. And there just need to be people who are like, it's not knowledge, it's like how I move, you know what I mean? Like, that's just how I do things, you know? Like, all of those types of folks uh, being at work are, are what, you know, contributes to this question of how we move out of these cycles of, of crisis and violence and, and oppression. Radio Havana, Cuba. Havana, Cuba. So maybe it's time to tune our radios to the music broadcasting from Cuba. Hola, amigos. Presentamos este programa. Quédense unos minutos con nosotros. Produced by Naya Hughes through the Braden Grant Program in 2017. This is Whiskey Six Yankee X-Ray, Stanford University Amateur Radio Club. We have a uh, podcast here on campus that's doing a uh, segment on uh, broadcasting. I'm going to uh, pass the radio here over to uh, Kathy, and she's going to uh, talk a little about the, her uh, podcast and make a uh, co- her first radio contact. Uh, please stand by, Whiskey Six Yankee X-Ray. So you push this big button with your thumb, hold it down while you're talking. Mm-hmm. So all the repeaters, all the 60 repeaters around the world will have a chance to come up. All right. Hi, uh, this is Kathy from the Stanford Storytelling Project. 
we'd like to hear people tell us why they fell in love uh, with ham radio, um, preferably from as far away as possible. Congress radio calling. Underground broadcasts during the Quit India movement. In Bombay, a freedom radio appeared. It was known as the Ghost Radio, from where every day broadcasts about the happenings in the country used to be made. Uh, it was called uh, the Congress uh, Radio. And um, uh, the radio itself uh, kept on shifting from place to place so that uh, the government was not able uh, to trace it with the various electronic devices that were brought into play uh, by the police and the CID. And if they located it uh, once on Malabar Hill, by that time it had been shifted to Kalbadevi and if it was they'd uh, followed it to Kalbadevi, meanwhile it had been shifted to Girgam and so on. The Freedom Radio, the Ghost Radio, the Congress Radio. Together, these three names describe the different missions and identities of India's first nationalist radio station. It was the secret, anti-imperialist voice of the Indian National Congress, the biggest and most important organization resisting British rule of India. But almost nobody knew anything about the station. Where was it transmitting from? Who was behind it? Most importantly, with the authorities on its tail, how long could it keep it up? This is the Congress radio calling on 42.34 meters. The station was hidden from authorities and constantly moving. Its operators were young, inexperienced, idealistic, and wanted by the state. But in the tumultuous, tense fall of 1942, when Mahatma Gandhi and the entire leadership of the Congress party were in jail, when the British censored and cracked down hard on any resistance to imperial rule, when the country was squeezed by famine and hardship as a battlefront in the war, the Congress radio managed, in the words of one of its founders, to tell the people what was actually happening. This is its story. To understand what the Congress radio was, it's important to understand where India was at the start of World War II. When the Second World War broke out, India was declared to be a belligerent country, much against her own wishes. The leaders resented this very much, and so did Mahatma Gandhi, the father of the nation. That's Sushamatha. This interview, held at the Cambridge University Center of South Asian Studies, was recorded in Bombay in 1969. Mehta died in 2000, at the age of 80. But on August 8, 1942, the day she came to the Golwalia Tank Maidan in Bombay to hear Mahatma Gandhi speak, she was just a 22-year-old student activist. Ever since the start of World War II, 
when the British Viceroy of India declared that India would fight in the war without asking the Indian people or the Indian leaders, public anger against the British had been growing. Now, almost three years later, and with no end to the war in sight, hundreds of thousands of people had gathered at the Golwalia Tank Medan in Bombay to hear what Gandhi had to say. His message was historic. On that day, Gandhi declared that the British had to quit India, and the Indians had to do or die in resisting imperial rule. It was the beginning of the Quit India movement. Gandhiji had told us that uh, the motto that we should follow is do or die, and that it is quite possible that all the leaders might be arrested, and therefore each one will have to act as his or her own leader and find out activities which they can undertake on their own. That's Sushamatha again. If her voice sounds a little bit different, it's because this time she's speaking in an interview conducted in 1988, 19 years after the other. This story makes use of audio from both interviews. The reaction to Gandhi's speech was enormous on both sides. By the next day, the British had jailed 60,000 Indians, including Gandhi, Nehru, and almost all of the rest of the Indian National Congress leadership. The city of Bombay erupted in protest, with hundreds of thousands taken to the streets. But with almost every important leader in jail, the structure of the Congress movement had disappeared. If the movement was going to survive, it was going to need new workers, new leaders, leaders like Mehta and her friends. They came mostly from families with means and education. Mehta's own father, for example, was a government servant, a solid, middle-class position. Their lives would be comfortable, whether or not India gained independence. Yet many young people, like Mehta, had been going to demonstrations and marches ever since they were 11 or 12 years old. They had grown up with the nationalist movement. They were willing to risk their privilege for freedom. Now the Congress needed their help more than ever. So Mehta, and hundreds of young people like her, went underground, working for the movement while living in secret. When the press is gagged and all news banned, our transmitter certainly helps a good deal in furnishing the public with the facts of the happenings and in spreading the message of rebellion in the remotest corners of the country. Our perusal of the history of the past campaigns had convinced us that a transmitter of our own was perhaps one of the most important requirements for the success of the movement. This was the origin of the Congress Radio, India's first major underground radio station and the voice of a free India. Radio broadcasting had existed in India since 1927, but the government had kept a tight grip on the technology. Older nationalist leaders had not challenged the government monopoly over radio, but the younger generation had other ideas. The plans came together quickly. Mehta and her colleagues raised the money necessary to begin work. Her two most important colleagues were Babu Bhai who suggested the idea of creating a radio station, and Vithal Bhai a Congress activist and, at 28, the oldest in the group. Together they contacted an acquaintance, a man named Nariman Printer, to build the first transmitter with parts bought from Bombay's famous Chicago radio company. By the 13th of August, 1942, the transmitter was ready to go. They began broadcasting the very next day.
the announcement was this is the congress radio calling on 42.34 meters from somewhere in india this announcement was almost the realization of a long cherished dream for all of us our radio was not one only in name we had our own transmitter a transmitting station a recording station as also a call sign and a distinct wavelength of our own minuscule in size the congress radio is global in its broadcasts to write the content of the broadcasts meta sought out the help of dr ramanohar lohia an older leader who had escaped arrest working together they designed broadcasts that not only informed indian listeners but represented the indian nationalist cause to the world nearly every imperialist exploit undertaken by britain in the east was financed out of indian resources between 1858 and 1914 no less than about 65 million pounds were spent on wars and military expeditions for which india had to foot the bill the congress radio connected people all across india with news that would be suppressed in the press or in the official broadcasts of all india radio now we shall give you some very sensational news from jamshedpur detailed reports of the mass resignations of jamshedpur policemen have now reached us immediately on receipt of information the inspector general of police bihar government arrived in jamshedpur and had the half a dozen police lines in the city surrounded by the military It didn't take long for word to spread about the broadcasts and the Congress radio soon attracted a large national and international audience. India itself had fewer than 100,000 licensed radio sets during the war, but the thirst for war news boosted radio listenership immensely. Large groups of people would gather around a radio owner's home during the evenings to listen to the differing stories given by the BBC, the Germans, the Italians, and so on. The Congress radio was added to that mix, and the more popular the Congress radio became, the more it spread its nationalist message the more the government wanted to see it destroyed correspondence between the bombay station director of all india radio and the government of india's home department now held in the national archives of india shows that the government became aware of the station on sunday august 16th just 3 days after it had launched by the next week the hunt was on here is anand kanekar a nationalist who worked with the congress radio to produce records we used to meet sometimes on the round at places fixed at the last uh, moment and have just escaped twice or thrice being rounded up because the police were too late in raiding that place or sometimes they were too early in uh, raiding those uh, places though the congress radio only claimed vaguely to be broadcasting from quote somewhere in india the police and cid investigators akin to american fbi agents on the case knew that the station was transmitting from bombay the police had come to know about this so they used to put their detecting van in the city and that detecting van could give them the direction from which messages were being transmitted but that time they did not have a powerful machine which would give them the exact location 
So they will get a radius of two or three miles. But before they could catch us, we would use to shift. Meta and her co-conspirators, five to seven people total, did everything they could to protect themselves and the station. To reduce risk of detection, the broadcasting location was kept separate from the recording location. Only the broadcaster's closest intimates knew about their involvement. They moved the transmitter, concealed in the backseat of a car, from flat to flat in the middle of the night, or in the hours before dawn. The Congress radio nevertheless seemed to be succeeding in keeping itself hidden. Again and again, government agents would narrow the station's location down to a one or two mile radius, only to find that the station had just left the area. The chase became an object of fascination for ordinary people in Bombay, who marveled that the station hadn't yet been shut down. Here is J.N. Sahini, a prominent journalist who tried to find Congress Radio himself. He got the address from a nationalist friend. And um, as I went, I found the place fairly empty. I thought I had been bamboozled or something. And then one of these persons came up to me and said, uh, are you um, trying to find uh, where's the radio station? I said, no, I didn't want to commit myself. I said, no, I just wanted to find this address. He said, don't be silly. That station has been removed for the last eight days from here. We are CID men. So, you see, <laughs> so if you are finding that, we don't know where it has gone. We are also in search of it, but it has gone from here. But in the end, betrayal came from within. During the first and second weeks of November, the Bombay police systematically raided the city's most important radio shops. One, the Chicago Radio Company, happened to be where Meta and her colleagues had first bought the parts for their transmitter with the help of Printer, their technician. In the records kept by the Chicago Radio Company, the police found Printer's name. And on November 13, 1942, Printer reappeared in their lives, this time with a band of police detectives in tow. So one fine afternoon, when, as usual, I was typing out Dr. Luhia's speech for that evening in Babubai's office, Mr. Printer came there with a group of CID officials. They entered Babubai's cabin and just <coughs> to caution me, Babubai shouted at the top of his voice that we do not know anything about Congress radio. We are the least concerned with all that. That was another lie that we had to tell. And if you want, you are at liberty to search my whole office. Metha knew she had taken a risk when she hired Printer to build their transmitter. In a 1968 interview, the transcript of which is now kept at the Narrow Memorial Museum and Library in New Delhi, she recalled that he was the only one who knew a great deal about the station who was not also a dedicated nationalist. But he didn't seem to be against the Congress either, and he was a good technician. So even when the police came in, she didn't suspect the printer had betrayed them. So immediately I switched over and I mean, I began typing something else. I removed all the files that we had kept there and went in and asked Babubai as to what I should do so far as mother was concerned. That was our code language issue. Mm -hmm. He said, you please go and tell doctor 
or if he comes to you, then also you can tell him that today I might not be able to come. And he can either change the prescription or continue the same, I leave it to him. The police were naturally curious to know what all this was about. And he said, this is my neighbor's daughter. There is no male member in her family and her mother is ill, so she does not know what to do and it is only I who look after both of them and with the doctor it's only I who talk. So they said, all right, they did not suspect me and therefore from there I immediately went to the recording station where we, so where Dr. Lohia, Achyut Patwardhan, Vittalbhai, Harisbhai and others were there, busy recording for that evening's program. Then they were very happy to see me, but I said, please do not be happy because I have come with very bad news that Bahubhai's office is raided and there is every possibility of our radio station also being raided this evening. So they said, what shall we do? I said, I have come to ask you what we should do. They said, we want your advice because you people are the real workers. I said, whatever happens, the work must go on. So they said, that is the spirit, the work must go on. So I said, all right, it will go on. Metha had a head start on the police. She and most of her colleagues could have fled abandoning the station before the police could come shut it down. But over three months, the Congress radio had not missed a broadcast. As Metha recalled, people across the country, but especially in Bombay, used to wait for the clock to strike 7.30 to listen to the Congress radio's broadcast. It was now evening, and the sun was setting. Metha had decided that the show had to go on. So she told her colleagues that the police would be there soon, and asked another colleague to help prepare a second transmitter, just in case. Then she went home to visit her mom. So I took the key, then went to my residence, told my mother that I am going to the radio station and I may not come back. That night, Metha put on the program, waiting for the police to show up. Finally, at the end of the show, when Vande Matram, the song that would become Independent India's national anthem, was playing, they did. We heard hard knocks on the door and the deputy commissioner of police, his military technicians and his troop of 50-odd policemen smiled and smiled triumphantly when they were able to break open three strong doors. I must have destroyed one or two records, but nothing could be done. And when the police came in, the first thing that they told me was, who is operating this? No answer. I did not reply. Then they said, please stop this record, one day matra. Then I said, it will not be stopped. You stand on attention, because that was our national anthem then, national song at least. And they did stand on attention. All of this drama could be heard, albeit faintly, across the country. Metha recalled that she wanted to grab the microphone and announce what had happened. She wanted to name Printer, whose face she saw now again with the police, for his betrayal. But before she could do so, Printer himself grabbed the fuse that was powering the transmitter and tampered with it. The program was over. The room was dark. 
immediately. There was darkness everywhere and the police were afraid that perhaps we would escape. Nothing of the sort, however, happened because Bapu had taught us to face the consequences of our act. From and there was this place of ours was on the third floor. And on every step of all the floors, there were two policemen, if not one. And uh, this, so I told Chandrakanbai, I said, Look, brother, I do not know whether in our life we will ever get a guard of honor, but this is certainly a guard of honor for us. Uh. So he said, Yes, you are right, and we are very happy. The night of November 13th marked the last broadcast of the Congress radio. The second transmitter, which meant that hope might keep the station going, was never built, and, in any case, there would have been almost nobody left to run it. For Methander colleagues met with the same fate as their hero, Mahatma Gandhi. After spending five months in jail, Methander colleagues Babu Bhai Kakar, Vithalas Javeri, Chandrakant Bhai Javeri, and Nanakji Motwane, who worked at the Chicago Radio Company, were brought to court in April 1943. The charges leveled against us were possessing, establishing, maintaining, and working illegally a wireless telegraph and apparatus appertaining thereto. The trial went on for full five weeks, and the sentence came in May. For the three months she spent broadcasting, Mehta was given four years in prison. Two of her colleagues walked. The police didn't have enough evidence. The rest of her colleagues received between one and five years in jail. Mehta stayed in jail until 1946, well after the war had ended. Indeed, she spent more time in jail than almost all of the people arrested on the fateful day after Gandhi's speech. Gandhi himself was released in 1944, and when he emerged, the freedom struggle was back in full force. Consequently, on the day of Mehta's release, the Congress movement was anything but underground. You should see the day I was released. I mean, it was such a thunderous reception for me. There were crowds and crowds and crowds of people in the Victoria Terminus station to receive me. And even in the press and after that also, the response, the people appreciated this work very, very much. So we were very, very happy, and those were really, even now I feel that they were golden days and unforgettable days, the happiest days of our life. You must have felt like pioneers. That's right. That story was produced by Neil Tucker and funded by a Braden grant from the Stanford Storytelling Project. Listen into the radio station where the mighty host of heaven sings. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. I've done so many things, such as talk to people on the International Space Station. I've talked to people by bouncing signals off of meteor tails. 
I've talked to people by bouncing signals off the moon. I've done things like text my uh, friend via text messages by bouncing a signal off the International Space Station digitally. I've talked to alumni on the space station. I've talked to the commander on the space station. So if you've ever seen a uh, meteor uh, shoot across the sky, a sh shooting star, uh, you'll notice that you get this green uh, tail and it lasts for a few seconds and then fades away. So as it turns out, that gas uh, is ionized as it's uh, burning and f failing, fading away. And ionized gas reflects radio waves, uh, compress our message into a short packet and just bounce it off. And it's called a ping. So it's just a of data off of the meteor tail. Act three, Stargate. Everything you wanted to know about remote viewing, but were afraid to ask. Okay. All right, well, we're recording. Sweet. Okay. Nine, seven, two, And then, dial? Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please consult your directory and call again. What? This is a recording. Do you mind telling me what, if anything, you had for breakfast? Oh, I actually had eggs and little potatoes right here today. Nine, zero, one, one, seven, 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 two. Is it calling? Silence. And maybe since this is the radio, can you tell me really quick what you're flipping through? Yeah, this is uh, the first of four volumes called the Stargate Archives. This covers everything you want to know about remote viewing, but we're afraid to ask. Hello? Hi, Mr. Geller? No, who is this? Uh, this is Cameron Tenner from the Stanford Storytelling Project. Just a moment, please. Okay, hold on one sec. Okay. Yeah, he'll be with you in 30 seconds. So let's start at the very, I think we're going to start at the very beginning. Okay, uh, my name is Dr. Edwin Charles May. Hello. Hi, Mr. Geller, this is Cameron from the Stanford Storytelling Project. Yes, hi, what's your first name? Cameron. Cameron, okay, and don't call me Mr., just call me Uri. Okay, Uri. Are we alone on the line, or are there other listeners? Um... This is Kathy. I'm just in the room recording right now. Okay. Just some background for our story. We are investigating this study that you did with the Stanford Research Institute. Fine. Here I am. You know, I have a PhD. With you? I've never heard of ESP. So, fire away. My, my, my career started... In the um, late 60s, uh, 68, 69, 70, uh, I was a male model, believe it or not. I wanted to make money. We were very poor. And I demonstrated my abilities to photographers who were photographing me for many different uh, adverts. One day, I bent a key to a photographer, and he kind of was astonished. He said to me that, None of his friends will believe him. And they invited me to home parties. And these parties became 
um, kind of more prestigious from photographers. I was invited to lawyers, from lawyers' houses to judges, from judges to generals. And then in one of these parties, uh, the prime minister of Israel was there, Golda Meir, and I asked her to go to the, to the toilet and draw a secret drawing. I think that, that I'm the only person that ever sent a prime minister to, to a toilet on command. She came out of the restroom, but I looked into her eyes and I drew the drawing. It was, she drew the Star of David. I got it exactly, precisely the same size. And really the next day was the beginning of my career because she was interviewed on an Israeli radio show and the, the presenter asked her to predict the future of Israel and she just, without hesit- hesitating, she said, don't ask me, ask Uri Geller. And that was it. The phone started ringing in my little apartment. When I left Israel, I thought I was ready to go to the United States. I wanted really show business. WNYC TV, Channel 31. I'm quite frank with you. I wanted the Merv Griffin show. From Hollywood, The Tonight Show. I wanted the Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson. I wanted the... Mike Douglas. Um, not only bending spoons, but bending our minds. I wanted fame and fortune. And here is one of the legendary figures of our time. This is Uri Geller. This is uh, Uri Geller. His name is Uri Geller. He claims to have psychokinetic powers, and that is the power to affect objects, sometimes by moving them, bending them, by lightly touching them. Um, I, I never really knew who was the instigator of getting me to Stanford Research Institute. Could you take me back to 1975, 1976, just before you joined SRI? Uh, I'd never heard of ESP when I was in my 30s. You know, I have a PhD in experimental nuclear physics. It was standard boring. I was bored out of my mind physics. So much to the consternation of my father, I quit. Uh, I was at a party. It was a pretty wild party. And I ran into a fellow named Ingo Swan a super remote viewer psychic. We became pretty close friends. He got me my job at SRI as a consultant to this project, mainly then funded by the CIA. What was the goal of their program then, and what was your goal? I am Bonner Cox, Executive Director of the Information Science and Engineering Division at Stanford Research Institute. Throughout mankind's history, there has existed a folklore that certain gifted individuals have been capable of producing physical effects by means of some agency, generally referred to as psychic or psychoenergetic. Substantiation of such claims by accepted scientific methodology has been slow in coming, but recent laboratory experiments, especially in the Soviet Union, have indicated that sufficient evidence does exist to warrant serious scientific investigation. We used to answer the phone, hello, Division of Parapsychology, may we tell you who's calling? (laughs) And and what kind of experiments were you doing at then? Well, um... This film describes a five-week investigation conducted at Stanford Research Institute with Uri Geller. Each scene has been taken from film footage made during actual experiments. Nothing has been restaged 
or specially created. Imagine a big book that has 20 packets of five photographs in each packet. Fifteen drawings were placed in double sealed envelopes in a safe for which none of the experimenters had the combination. Somebody outside would randomly pick one of those packets and then randomly pick one of the five pictures as the target. One of the researchers would then look at the drawing outside the experimental room, reseal the envelope, enter the experimental room, whence Geller's task was to draw what he perceived in the envelope. And I'd ask you, okay, Kathy, please access and describe a photograph. This is the drawing that Geller has made to correspond to the target object. The rectangle on the clipboard represents the TV screen in Geller's mind on which he claims to project the image he is trying to draw. As you can see, he is quite elated about getting the right answer. If this is true, the big if, then it has obvious intelligence uh, implications during the Cold War. And so the intelligence community got really interested. Before he does this, it is usually preceded by several minutes of, I can't do this, it's impossible. I want to stop. Let's wait. Even when I was seven years old, I wanted to be a spy. In biblical lessons, when the teacher taught us about Moses' spies that he sent to Canaan, that lit me up. I was young, Cameron. I, I had a James Bond in mind. So I was living a movie. We had three jobs at SRI, only three. One is gather intelligence on the bad guys, whoever they were. Number two, if we could spy on them, they could spy on us. What kind of a threat is it? The third one uh, was to do some, what we called operational research. It was extremely uh, classified. So there are very few people that knew about it. Can you describe what uh, a defense setup would look like? Well, one of the examples was from an organization we called NPIC, the National Photographic Interpretation Center. Their job is to figure out what the satellites are looking at. <laughs> NPIC saw this new building right on the water in the former Soviet Union and said, well, we don't know what's going on there, but we'd like to know what's going on inside there. We don't have World War II spies on the ground telling us. This is going to sound a little bit like fake magic, but this is the way we work. They sent us a satellite photograph of the roof of the building. That was placed in a sealed envelope, and that sealed envelope was placed in another sealed envelope, and sealed up really very carefully, given to someone who did not know where what was inside the envelope or where it came from. That person sat down with our subject and said, the problem for today is in this envelope. What can you tell us? Over the lifetime of this program, we had 504 separate spying missions. And of those 504 spying missions to use ESP to gather information from everywhere, they were spread across 19 different federal agencies. Of those 19 agencies, 17 of them came back for more data. And they wouldn't do that if it wasn't working. Okay, so what I have here is that uh, around 1984, um, the National Resources Council, they published this long, detailed report on a bunch of things, um, one of which was... Us. Us. Yeah, they clobbered us. Yes. Uh, my name is David Goslin. I retired from my last full-time job as president of the American Institutes for Research in 
1971. In 1974, I moved to Washington, D.C. to go to work for the National Academy of Sciences. I was approached in the mid-1980s by the Army Research Institute, which asked if we would put together a committee of subject matter experts to examine a whole range of quote, techniques for the enhancement of human performance. One of the sets of techniques were paranormal phenomenon, including remote viewing, uh, psychokinesis, and uh, some other uh, extrasensory perception techniques. That was my first exposure to even the term I believe remote viewing, the Academy put together a committee of 12 or 13 experts, did its work and produced a really terrific report. Now, did it conclude that there was proof that such abilities did not exist? No, it did not. It said all we can conclude is that we do not have evidence, concrete evidence that such abilities exist. You know, the controversy around, that's nonsense. None of the skeptics and all those people were there. So all the boo-ha-ha around, how did I do it? How did I fool them? New scientists came out with a story that I had transmitters hidden in my teeth. Ridiculous. They had no access to any of the classified data. And, you know, later on, when Congress ordered the CIA to take this program, they didn't want it. So what did they do? Well, they hired the American Institutes of Research to uh, kill it. Told them what to do, and they did it. I was contacted five, six years, seven years later by someone from the Central Intelligence Agency who asked if AIR would be willing to undertake a subsequent review of an operational program making use of remote viewers located within the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, my, my thought was we already settled that question. That study's already been done. And uh, they said, well, we first called the National Research Council to see if they would do another study on this subject. And they turned me down. They said, we've already done that. Um, so they asked if we would review whatever evidence had been accumulated by ongoing research, among other places at the Stanford Research Institute. We set up a plan to interview all of the participants, including the remote viewers. The results are crystal clear, which is it was useless. It was all over the place. There was never anything precise enough to be of any use to anybody. And that's not very surprising because a statistically significant result when you run a hundred tests, which is just above chance, doesn't mean that you're reporting where Vladimir Putin was on Thursday afternoon at two o'clock. We lost about a million and a half dollar contract from the Air Force. Do you feel like SI should be used for, for intelligence? Totally, it should be. 
you feel like it should be. Yeah. And it Do I think it's happening? <laughs> I hope it is. I don't have any evidence, don't have any clearances anymore. It's not unnatural for human beings to want to believe that there are superpowers out there that they could have or that someone might have. Good scientists do chase down improbable things. People want to believe. Do you, do you want to believe? Like if I really pressed you, I don't know, are you one of those people? <laughs> No, I'm a scientist. <laughs> I believe in science, and science here tells me it doesn't exist. Why do I do it? I guess now, given the, the skepticism and the response, what keeps you coming back? Like, do you have any regrets? I was destined to be somewhat of a mediocre physicist teaching physics at some podunk university somewhere. And that would have been a boring, awful life, so I have no regrets. That story was produced by me, Kathy Wong, Cameron Tenner, and Victoria Yuan. Never, ever, touch drugs. There will be people who will try to influence you to smoke weed and cannabis. Every three seconds, a baby dies from hunger. Kathy, how old are you? And what does your father do? I visited the White House. Al Gore was there. I met President Carter. You know, these are names that you can Google. Wake up every morning and put yourself in an attitude of gratitude. Say no. Say no thank you. Don't touch drugs. Okay, listen, it was a pleasure talking to you. Much energy to you. Bye, good night. Can you hear me? This is Cameron Tenner, radioing in from Lake Lagunita. It is a nice, sunny day. There are plenty of birds in the sky. And there's a lot of construction going on next to me. You've been listening to State of the Human. The podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. This episode was produced by Yui Lee, radioing in from the Whisper Circle. Chris LeBeau, radioing in from the basement of Shriram. Nataka, radioing in from suburban Chicago. Naya Hughes, radioing in from some random room in Hughes. Victoria Yuan, radioing in from Building 110. And myself, Kathy Wong, radioing in from the Stanford Storytelling Project. Okay. This is Jackson Roach, radioing in from the tree by the Stanford wall. Um, I'm actually inside of the tree. This episode was produced with help from me, Jackson Roach, Jake Warga, Christy Hartman, and Jonah Willingham. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. The Program in Writing and Rhetoric, Stanford Art, and Brief Writing. You can find this in every episode of State of the Human through our website. Storytelling.stanford.edu. Over and out. 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 <laughs>